0: Well, if you would, if you would look with me in Philippians chapter 4 for context, because I believe Paul is laying out one central argument. It's kind of like his last minute instructions for the Christian life before he closes out the letter. He writes in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice That's the Christian life. It's joy in the Lord. That's the fuel. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds In Christ Jesus. Again, you never get past this phrase, in Christ Jesus. Our union with Christ is the most significant thing about us. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me... Practice these things and the God of peace. That lets us know that he's continuing his thought from verse 7. Where he speaks about the peace of God. But here the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you. And we recognize and confess that we are so prone to joylessness. So prone to anxiety and fear. Inordinate fear. And yet, you have given us a foolproof remedy. It's found in Christ Jesus and applied by your Spirit, and yet, we have responsibility. You're sovereign, your grace is sovereign, and yet, in your economy, our responsibility matters. Our endeavors, our disciplines matter. So, Lord, we pray today that your Spirit would teach us, and we pray that we could. Get a vision of your, the glory of your son today in a fresh way. Enlighten the, the eyes of our hearts for that. That's our greatest need today. And Lord, when we behold his glory, it places all of our other concerns in their proper place. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Al Martin who is a pastor, pastor of the same church in New Jersey for 46 years, but also an author. In his book, Life of Principled Obedience, he tells about a missionary friend of his who several years ago went to preach in a place in rural South Carolina. Well, he got lost, and there were no signs in that area, and his map wasn't helping him. And so he thought to himself, if I could only find out where I am, then I could get to my destination. Well, before long, he saw a little boy on the side of the road. So he stopped his car by and he said, son, I'm lost. But if I knew where I was, I think I could get to where I have to go. Can you tell me where I am? The little boy looked at him very confused. And he said to the man, mister, you's right here. That's where you are, right here. You're nowhere else. Now, as Christians, our spiritual location, as I said earlier, is in Christ Jesus. We have been united to Christ, the God-man, the victorious God-man. And now what's true of Christ in his victory is true of us. Christ came as the God-man to keep the terms of the covenant because we don't. And we need a perfect righteousness to stand before God. He fulfilled all righteousness. And then this God-man went to the cross. And because we do not keep and fulfill all righteousness, we deserve judgment. And God's judgment was poured on the Son in our place as our substitute. And then Christ was raised from the grave as our substitute for us and our salvation. So that we might have the forgiveness of sins. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father as our substitute. Where he rules and he reigns. And we have been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places, Paul says. That is our spiritual location. But our practice and our character does not yet perfectly match our position. And an effective spiritual navigation tool, if you will, to help us determine where we are spiritually in the practical sense is found in this passage. We've looked at verses 4 to 7 thus far over the last couple of weeks, and we have seen four commands, four imperatives. The first is rejoice. Rejoice always. Rejoice in the Lord. That's verse 4. In verse 5, we saw the command to be reasonable, that is, with each other. Deferring our preferences and our rights for the greater good. Then we saw the command to be anxious for nothing. Don't worry. And then the fourth command is to pray with thanksgiving. In other words, where we are spiritually in the practical sense is nowhere else than what's being patterned in our lives with regard to joy, reasonableness, peace, and prayer. Now, Paul, again, is concerned, all the way back to chapter 127, that we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So this isn't just about our existential peace. We have a calling, as the people of God, to be light in darkness. Chapter 2, verse 15 And joyless Christians eclipse the light. Unreasonable Christians eclipse the light. Anxious and worried and fearful Christians eclipse the light. Prayerless Christians eclipse the light. And so that's what Paul is going after. But he also knows that in order for these these things to be strengthened, we need a couple of other disciplines, practices that we we are consistent with and, and focused on and committed to. And so Paul now is going to close out this section with one long sentence in the original language. In verses 8 to 9, we have one sentence in the Greek language, but he gives us two commands. The first is we're to think. And the second, we are to practice. Both of these are foundational to seeing the full fruition ...of what he's going after in verses 4 to 7. The first thing we see in verse 8... ...is that the Christian life... ...is a life of joyful gospel pondering. That is reflecting meditation. Again, we never get past that verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Without joy, none of this can be achieved. Now, notice whom me in verse 8. He says, finally, brothers... It's not like he's closing out the letter right here. It's he's closing out a conversation that began in verse 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Again, the context is anxiety. Paul knows that the only thing that can dislodge inordinate fear and anxiety is a greater fear. Think about this. A person may be fearful that he or she is not going to get their promotion. But then they learn they may be fired. So that greater fear dislodges the lesser fear. Now that person no longer worries about the promotion. There's a greater fear. An athlete may fear he's not going to get enough playing time or his team's going to have a losing season. But then he learns he may be cut from the team. A greater fear dislodges the lesser fear. Look on it on a positive note. Uh, A person who is the chief chef at Morton's, our Ruth Chris, will not fear if he or she is called to to cook for a small group of people in their home. A person who has preached before thousands and thousands will not fear if he is called to teach a small Sunday school class. In other words, if you really want to fight anxiety and dislodge it and inordinate fear we must learn to fear something, or rather, someone who captures our awe in such a way that it places those things we're fearful about in their proper place. And so one of the divine remedies to fight for joy and to fight against anxiety is for believers to focus their minds on God's glorious truth. On God. And on the person of Christ. And on the gospel of Christ. And on the work of Christ. And what that does is it creates in us a greater awe. A greater fear than anything we might be fearing in the created order. And, and it unites our hearts to fear God even more. Now from the perspective of the Philippians. What were their scriptures? They didn't have the 27 books of the New Testament as we know them. Of course, one was being written to them, the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians. But their Christian scriptures was the Old Testament. And so when you think about what Paul is speaking to them, they had to have in mind the Old Testament scriptures. And you think about what is the paradigm for the Christian life in the Old Testament scriptures. It's the wilderness wandering years. Paul picks that up in 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 15. Think about that. In the wilderness wandering uh, narrative, you have the people of God who've been redeemed out of bondage through the blood of the Passover lamb. And yet they have not come into their inheritance, the promised land. So between their redemption and their inheritance is the wilderness. And what does God do in those years? Well, they learn during that time, that God is near. They learn that God hears them. They learn that He tests them and that He provides grace every day and that He ultimately is a God who delivers. And those renewed thoughts should captivate and delight us and indeed reorient us back to the one who's controlling history. Paul understands that. He understands that's how you chastened anxiety. Indeed, our our thoughts play a critical role in our spiritual direction, a fundamental role. And that's why there's no true sanctification, growth in godliness, apart from the renewing of our minds. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. But get this for to be carnally minded is death. Death there is judgment. If you are carnally minded by by pattern in your life, it's the way to judgment. But to be spiritually minded, he says, is life and peace. Isn't that beautiful? To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Where there's life, where there's peace, there is no anxiety. There's joy that replaces joylessness. Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. So how do we keep from being conformed to the world in which we live in, that we see all around us? Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. It's what he's going after here. Now, when Paul strings together one term after another, it's hard to make hard, fast distinctions between the various definitions of these terms. I think he's doing this for a fact. And scholars distinguish between these terms in verse 8 as well as they, as well as they can. But there's a lot of overlap with these terms. And to make it even more complicated... There are eight terms in this verse, six adjectives and two nouns. Five of those eight terms are rarely used in the New Testament. And two of the terms aren't used anywhere else but here in Philippians chapter 4. So I think Paul is essentially giving us this expanded list to drive home the point of how crucial it is that we fill our minds with the glory of God, the glory of Christ, the glory of His gospel, and what that will do, it will counter the false claims this world makes, the the false gospels that this world makes, the lies that the, this world offers. It's these very lies, these very false gospels that are behind your anxiety. It's those very untruths that are behind our joylessness. Paul knows that. So notice when he says, so whatever is true. Oftentimes when Paul gives us a list, the first term is the umbrella term. For instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 3... He says the overseer must be above reproach. And then he gives you a list of adjectives that describes the man. That list is essentially a list that supports what it means to be above reproach. In Galatians 5, we saw this when we studied Galatians. It doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit. It says the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And then Paul says, you want to know what love is? It's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so in this list, I believe the umbrella term is whatever is true. And it's truth. The Holy Spirit controls our minds with truth. That's how he takes hold of our minds and redirects them from fear and anxiety and joylessness. Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he prayed to the Father in that high priestly prayer. He said, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's God's strategy. There's no other strategy. But this also immediately tips us off that this isn't some subjective process. You hear sometimes, I heard uh, two pundits this week talking on the news and And one pundit said to the other pundit, that's your truth. This is my truth. That's the postmodern world in which we live. But true truth is not autonomously determined. I don't get to determine my truth. Do you recognize how disastrous that would be in a world with over 5 billion people, 7 billion people? If everybody got to determine their truth. If everybody got to determine what's lovely and commendable and excellent to them. It would be chaos. So a racist could use their truth to justify slavery or Jim Crow. A German dictator could use his truth to justify ethnic cleansing. A pervert could use his truth to justify pornography. And so these six adjectives and these two nouns have to be tethered to an objective reality or you have chaos. Paul is just leading, he's aiding and abetting a chaotic situation. But that's not what he's doing. That objective reality is God's revelation to us in Scripture. God is there and he is not silent. He has not left us to fend for ourselves. Or you're just going to have the book of judges all over again. Doing that which is right in our own eyes. I'll give you a couple of arguments why I make this case that what Paul is saying in verse 8 is these realities are discovered as revealed in scripture. Uh, My first argument would come from a very similar passage in Colossians chapter 3, where Paul says, in verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Now, the reason it's the peace of Christ is he's the one that secured it through his all-sufficient work. He's the Prince of Peace. And what's interesting is that word, to rule, is the same word we get for umpire. Paul is saying there, Let the peace of Christ call the shots in your heart. But here's the question. How in a world like ours that is broken and under the curse of sin, how can we let peace rule? Paul says, I'm glad you asked that question. Because the very next verse says, and let the word of Christ richly indwell you. And so the peace of Christ and the word of Christ are the key. All right? A second argument I would make from the text here itself. In verse 8, he's clearly connecting that to verse 9, which is clearly connected to verse 7. And in verse 9, it says, Whatever you learned and received and heard and seen in me. And what have they heard? What have they seen in Paul? They have heard the whole counsel of God. They've heard the gospel of God. They have seen him live that out. And so this is truth that is tethered to Scripture. It's not just me having, you know, subjective thoughts where I, I claim peace, you know, I, I claim joy. Paul is calling us to think on those things that are the very expression of peace and joy. The glory of God in the face of Christ. So truth is objective. And the rest of this verse describes what he's talking about. He says, whatever is honorable. That is, it's a word that means lofty, elevated, and noble. Whatever is just, that is, whatever corresponds to the law of God, that which conforms to the law of God, whatever is pure, that is from the root word where we get the word holiness, the word sanctification, holy, whatever is lovely. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. It's that which is pleasing and beautiful. Whatever is commendable. Again, this is the only place this word is used in the New Testament. That is, that which is highly regarded. And then he looks to two nouns. If there is any excellence, that is, ethical integrity, moral excellence, morally pleasing. If there is anything worthy of praise. Now, that word is used most often... For praise directed to God. That's another sign that he's referring to Scripture itself. Anything worthy of praise. Anything that will provoke praise. And by the way, we all praise. Even atheists praise. And God, through the apostle, is on a rescue mission. He's rescuing our praise. We tend to praise something in the created order... And the the created order is a poor Messiah, a poor God. And so what Paul is doing under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's rescuing our praise from the horizontal to the vertical. And then he says, think about these things. Think about these things. Now that word, think about, is is a word from where we get the mathematical term, Logarithm. Now why in the world would he use this term? Well, he's calling us to kind of a prolonged meditation on these glories like a mathematician would reflect and think upon a math equation. And the verb here is in the present tense. What does that tell us? There's no vacation from this. There's no sabbatical from this. I tell my children all the time. There's no vacation from discipline. I tell my students, there's no vacation from stewardship. This is the present tense. It's like an athlete. If an athlete wants to get conditioned, he can't take weeks off. He can't work out once a month. It has to define his life. If you want joy, that's not sporadic. If you want peace, that's not sporadic. Paul says you have to think about these things 24-7. This has to be the state you're in where you're renewing your mind. It demands a constant exposure to those means by which we are enabled to learn these glories. Too often in, in American Christianity, we make it too easy. Yes, it's all of grace, for sure. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But grace always goes public. We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Those works are not the root of our salvation, they're the fruit. And one of the works is that we desire to know God. One of the fruits is that we we desire to walk with him, to be conformed to his likeness. And so this text obviously forbids all mental preoccupation with and unnecessary exposure to that which is not true, to that which is not honorable. Unfortunately, I've read so many statistics lately that uh, professing christians' viewing habits at home are essentially no different than non-christian christian viewing habits and what we're seeing mostly in the things we see on tv and the movies and netflix for that matter are anything but true anything but honorable and just and lovely and then we wonder where's god we wonder where's the peace where's the joy And Paul is giving us the prescription here. One of my favorite texts from the Old Testament that kind of exemplifies this is the book of Joshua. Now, if you understand the context, you kind of feel this. Moses has died. The greatest leader that the Israelites would ever know under the Old Covenant. And not only has he died... Joshua has taken his place, and he's no, Joshua, he's no Moses. He's a, he's a godly man, but he's no Moses. And God has called the Israelites to go into the land and destroy the enemies of God in the land. It's a wicked people. In fact, Deuteronomy 7 tells us that it was made up of seven nations, all of them mightier and greater than Israel. They were more in number, and they were more powerful. They were a warrior people. In Deuteronomy 9, it tells us that they were a a large people, and their fortresses, their defense fortresses extended to the heavens. It's an impossible task from a human perspective. And I can assure you, Joshua, it was just as much a human as you or I. In fact, when God is commissioning him in Joshua chapter 1, here's what he says three times. Be strong and courageous. Now, why would God tell Joshua three times to be strong and, and courageous? Because, humanly speaking, he was anything but strong. He was weak and needy, just like you and I. And he was anything but courageous. He was likely prone to anxiety like us. Prone to fear like us. So how is this man going to be strong and courageous? He's following the legend. And the task before him is greater than the legend's task in one sense. The key is, God says, to think about that which is true. Here's what it says in verse 8. Chapter 1 of Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. A man busier than any human being in this room. And he's called to meditate on God's truths, day and night. God's words were to saturate his life. They were to give him his direction. They were to shape his his mind and form, his patterns and fuel his passions and inspire his actions. They were to replace his fear. They were to replace his anxiety. And how many times do we read this this mandate to meditate? This is not just one of many paths of the believer's life. It's the only path. Psalms. Begin with this call to meditate on the book of the law. Psalm 119, which is the great book on scripture, time and time again, meditate on the word. Give me life according to your word. I will meditate on your precepts. So let me just give you a few examples here. Uh, The examples are as innumerable as the 66 book canon. But let me just give you a couple of examples here. When I am anxious about something that I'm facing, I fight that fear with the promise. Isaiah 41, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And we know even greater than the prophet that the right hand is a person. The son of God. When I'm anxious about decisions that I have to make. And all of us have to make decisions during the week, don't we? I fight that anxiety with the promise. Psalm 32. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. That's the shepherd speaking. When I am anxious about getting old. Which I had a student tell me last week. You're getting old. You look a lot older than you used to be. And then I had my hair cut yesterday. And the woman cutting my hair says, You are losing your hair up here. And you're getting gray. And I said, It doesn't help you telling me that. When I'm anxious about getting old, I fight that anxiety with a promise. Isaiah 46. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. When I'm anxious about people who are against me, I fight that anxiety with the promise what then shall man do to me? If God is for us, who can be against us? When I'm anxious about my sin, I fight that anxiety with a promise. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ took the condemnation for me. I'm in Christ. And it's not just isolated verses that we consider, though we certainly do that. It's the grand narrative. The promise that God is going to crush the seed of the serpent. He is going to make the sad things come untrue. He's going to fix the broken things. He's going to usher in a new creation where we will dwell with the triune God. And that's what the truth does for us. It reorients us back to reality. From the temporal things, the city of man that makes us so anxious and fearful. The reason the city of man makes us so anxious and fearful is because we know inherently the city of man is so volatile and uncertain. Indeed, it has a termination date. The city of God, though, is eternal. And that's what Paul is saying. You've got to reorient yourself back to reality or you will be enslaved to anxiety. You will be enslaved to joylessness. Unfortunately, today, we give inordinate time... And time is our most precious of commodities. Ask people as they're getting older. They will tell you how fast time goes. It's a precious commodity. And we give inordinate time to fun and escapism. We spend hours per day sometimes before the fantasy world of video games, Netflix, Our hobbies. And these things begin to take on a kind of status that's more real to us than the real world of the Bible. Where we find those glorious truths to chasten those vanities. To chasten uh, those counterfeit gospels. And to inform the practice of our faith. That brings us to the next verse, verse 9. Indeed, before we can even practice our faith, meditation is crucial. It's critical. And out of that meditation comes instruction and direction and application. This is the way of joy. It's the way of peace. Indeed, it's the way by which we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. That brings us to the second part. The Christian life is a life of, yes, gospel pondering. It's also a life of gospel practice. Notice we in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. Now, in order to put verse 8 into practice, Paul seems to be saying we need to see it lived out in concrete. For instance, if you were raised in uh, in a home where your parents did not have a godly marriage, when you hear the term godly marriage, that is so abstract to you. That's why you need to be in a church where you see godly marriages lived out. It becomes concrete at that point, all right? And Paul recognizes that what he's been talking about in verse 8 could very well seem very abstract to to these believers. And so he is a model of concreteness, if you will. That's a term. Now, there's a four-part progression in verses 8 and 9 that should serve, I think, well as a discipleship paradigm. Think about this. Verse 8, meditation. Verse 9, instruction, direction, and application. That's a wonderful four-part paradigm for discipleship. Meditation, instruction, direction, and application. And it would be beneficial for all of us to ask ourselves, how are we doing in these four specific areas? Meditation, instruction, direction, and application. But having said that, Paul's example here as an apostle is one of a kind. And to drive home the the transformation or the the transforming effect of following his example, Paul pulls together four verbs here in verse 9. Notice them. He said, what you learned and received, I think those travel together, and what you heard and you saw from me. Now, the first two refer primarily to his teaching and his gospel, his writings. That's why I think you have to connect verse 8 with verse 9. The latter two refer to his model life. Paul says how many times, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You go, well, we we don't see Paul embodied here, but we see him embodied in the scriptures. We see how he responds to the very struggles of his life. We see that he's writing from a prison. He's been in a prison for two years, and not only that, he's having to pay for that prison. It's not taxpayers that are paying for it. It's him who's paying for it. We know that from Acts 28, And he's been chained to a criminal for two years. Never has he been more than 18 inches apart from an imperial guard for two years. He's there on false charges as well. And Paul is calling his people to rejoice like he does. So we can follow his example just by considering the scriptures. And Paul says, practice these things. Which I think extends all the way back to verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Be, re- be reasonable with everyone. Be anxious for nothing. And again, note the effect. The God of peace will be with you. Now in verse 7, he promised the peace of God. And here, it's the God of peace. In other words, we practice these things. We meditate on these things, and we get God. And we get the fruits of having God, which is the peace of God. That's what your heart longs for, is peace. Blaise Pascal says, it's behind even the person who hangs himself. He's looking for peace. Our hearts are hardwired for peace. And as I've said before, if we are peace source amnesiacs, We go on a horizontal search for peace. And when we go to the creation to give us what only God can give, it makes our anxiety worse. Peace is only found in God. Through His Son, Jesus Christ, by His Spirit. And yet there are responsibilities we have. He doesn't just pour the peace in by osmosis. Of course, and this is a very important point as we close. If God is going to give us peace, and he has promised that he will be with us, that's the end of verse 9, the question arises, how can a God like that dwell with people like us? Sinners when God has made it very clear from the Garden of Eden on that He will not allow sinners to dwell in His presence. When Adam and Eve sinned, He cast them out of the Garden. When He gave the instructions on the tabernacle and the temple, there was a holy, most holy place where God dwells. Because sinners can't dwell there. So how can God promise His peace and His presence to people like us? A price had to be paid. An infinite price. Essentially, the price had to be paid by man because we're behind the mess. A human problem requires a human solution. Uh, My family and I have been reading a book in our family worship and that's a, a statement that was made so often in this book. A human problem requires a human solution. And the human problem was caused by human. So we need a human solution. So we need someone who will come as a man, as a substitute. And yet only God can pay the price. So we need God. God is the one who can bring salvation. We need a God-man. We need one who's fully man, and we need one who's fully God. If God is going to dwell with people like us. And that's what the Prince of Peace did. He came as our substitute. He came and he, as our substitute, did what you and I could not do if we would and would not do if we could. We He worshipped God and loved the Lord his God with his heart, mind, soul, and strength and fulfilled all the terms of God's covenant with humanity. And then he went to the cross And God's holy wrath was satisfied, propitiated in this substitute. And then he raised him from the grave. And if God has done that supreme thing for us in the death of his son, the Prince of Peace, he won't, indeed he can't forsake us now. He can't leave us halfway. In other words... It's the gospel that is the great event that chastens anxiety and fear. The gospel communicates he is fully invested in your well-being. He's fully invested in you. He will not leave you halfway. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how much more will he in him freely give us all things? Romans 8:32. And the more the eyes of our hearts are enlightened to that reality, a reality that we are to think upon, that which is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely, the more our hearts are enlightened to that reality, the more we experience the subjective peace of God that is grounded by the objective peace. That Christ has made for us through his cross. Therefore, having been justified by peace or by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the boy was right. He really was. You are where you are, and you're nowhere else. But in light of God's promises, peace, joy, forgiveness of sins, Where are you? The gospel tells us we can have joy. We can have peace. And if you have never trusted in Christ, the gospel tells us that no matter what you've done, you can have the forgiveness of sins. If you will, confess your sin to God. Confess to him that you're a a sinner. You're a lawbreaker. And that you deserve his just judgment. But his son has come In the place, in your place, satisfying the law's demands, satisfying God's demands. And if you trust in Christ, the Bible says you will have peace with God. Objective peace, the most important reality. And your sins will be forgiven. So this is a text to, yes, the believer. But it's a text as well to the unbeliever. Let God speak to you today through this word. Let's pray. Father, for some of us, anxiety just seems to be a, a companion that we can never leave until glory. And yet, this text seems to be indicating otherwise. And yet, it's a, there are means by which we overcome. You are sovereign. Your grace is merciful and sovereign. And yet... There are things we must do. Your joy is a gift and yet we must rejoice. We must pray with thanksgiving. And we must think about the things that are ultimate. And true and honorable and just and lovely. And then we must follow and believe and trust Paul's example and his teachings. And the other apostles. And the prophets. Father I pray that. This text would be a means of grace. For the anxious in the room. Set us free from our anxiety. We recognize that anxiety not only plagues us. It plagues our family. Those around us. And. It harms our witness. And father I pray. If there's any here today. That's never trusted in Christ. That you'd convict them today. And. That they would be saved. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.